Well, it hasn't happened yet. I'm Brian. I'm CJ. I'm Isaac, and I'm already on one. <laughs> yeah, I know. This has been like an hour's worth of tweets leading up to this. I mean, not tweets, texts uh, leading up to this podcast. This is, uh, and CJ, right before you jumped on, Isaac was like, I have a bad feeling about this. Didn't, not the exact words, but, what's that? but it didn't bode well. <laughs> so Brian we'll get... continues to misrepresent my words. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just, it's, it's a paraphrase. It's, it's uh, I think the spirit of what you were saying was there. <laughs> well, as I uh, heard from one of the people on the Liturgist podcast, uh, people who disagree with your ideas just hate you because they're trapped in the ego. I don't even know what that means. Is that a, is that a direct quote? Yeah, yeah. And you'll be, if you want to teach people just to love one another, you'll be persecuted for it, just like Jesus. You'll be considered a freak. One might even say a Jesus freak. Mm. <laughs> Can we drop DC Talk in here? Yeah, <laughs> like, like yeah, we really needed the soundboard there, Brian. I know. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, yeah. We, we'll, I mean, do you have to pay for that? What will people say? <laughs> anyway. Um, oh, man. Um, yes. Oh, yeah. So liturgist, but that's later, right? Uh, yeah. Original, just the original three real heads on the pod today. And it's time to start with a little, a little confession. This may be what actually gets Brian canceled more than anything else he'll ever say. Brian, would you tell us about the time that you met Taylor Swift? Yeah. So this is funny because this is one of those stories that people give me a hard time about because I've either told it to him like, hey, did I ever tell you about the time I met you, Taylor Swift? Or I think I've told him and I drop it and people are like, wait, what? Go back. So like when my kids were, when my son was just born and my daughter was like two and a half, three years old, we were poor. I was unemployed at the time and just looking for anything to do to keep, to get my kids like out of the house and not, you know, just basically stuck in this little tiny house that we lived in at the time. So my friend, shout out to Jeremy, was like, you should come out and, uh, you should come out and this is air show. We'll walk the kids around. They'll fall asleep and then we can go grab lunch or something. I was like, okay, cool. So go to this air show. It's, you know, a typical North Carolina air show, just a bunch of like planes that you can walk around and see. And after about five minutes of it, I was just like, all right, I'm, I'm done with this, uh, uh, but then all of a sudden, there's like this little tiny like Learjet type of thing, like, you know, whatever private jet. And I asked my friend, I was like, hey, is that one that we can go on? Because I was like, I'd much rather go look at that than look at some, you know, weird uh, B-52 bomber thing or whatever that was not even flying anymore. Um, and he's like, no, no, that's some some country star, you know, or some up and coming country star landed here because uh, she's getting ready to, she just left the uh, Greensboro Barbecue Festival. Uh, and is and is getting ready to go open up for um, oh shit I forget the name of the band I can't remember some big country band that I'm 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 forgetting uh, I think they did Life Is a Highway as a cover What's that Do you know Rascal Flats, Rascal Flats. Yeah, I don't think I don't know if it was Rascal Flats, but he's, yes, it's Rascal Flats. Is it okay? Yes, <laughs> but she was going to open up for them, and I was like, oh okay, fine. And we're walking around, and then all of a sudden, you know, there's this teenager comes up. Already, this story is fucking incredible. Sorry. Just keep keep going. (laughs) So anyway, this teenager comes up to us and is like, oh my gosh, your daughter's so cute. Can I take a picture with her? And I was like, yeah, sure. And then uh, we start talking and she's the, uh, it's her and her mom and a couple of other people. And they're just kind of walking around the air show waiting. Uh, And she basically ends up taking my daughter, Nora, like 
basically taking her and like walking around the whole air shows and like just like looking at all the things and talking to her and having this grand old time taking all these pictures uh, and everything. And I was just like, oh, cool, free babysitting. Because just to be clear, like Taylor Swift was not like a thing yet, right? Like this is before the first yeah, album. she was. No, she wasn't. The first if album. She's, she's already opening for Rascal Flats, then she was a thing. Well, her, her album had come out. No, no, her album had not come out yet. Her album hadn't come out yet. This was like part of the, the thing there. I guess they were catching on that this was going to be a big deal. Anyway, don't that this is that's important. It's important to know that she wasn't a big deal because that's my only out in this story. But anyway, she's uh, so she's walking around taking pictures afterward. And then I was just sitting there talking to her mom and you know, and she was saying, you know, that they were just got done doing this and they got the call and this is kind of her big break, yada yada, whatever. And I was like, oh cool. So we're getting ready to leave. Nora's looking tired. I was like, okay, we're going to go. She's like, oh, one more picture. And then she gave her a picture. And then she's like, I got all this stuff here. Sign this. And she signed like, like six different pictures of herself and uh, like a promotional, like publicity, huge poster thing, a copy of this, the first CD signed to Nora. He loved Taylor, uh, all this stuff, just all this stuff. And I was like, oh, cool. Thanks. Uh, we get into the car and just like, I kind of just like toss it in the back and we go home. Don't think about it at all. Um, I don't know, cut like a month or two later and we're getting ready to move. Uh, and I'm there, like my wife and kids are already kind of in Tennessee where we're getting ready to move. And I'm just going through all this shit that we have in our house, trying to get rid of stuff. And I see this stuff and I have this moment of, uh, <laughs> the awful was not out, but anyway. I'm looking at the uh, dates yeah, right I'm now. I'm like doing the dates. Oh, well, that's Jesus. what I'm doing on my phone right now. Doing the, <laughs> her album came out in 2006, Brian. <laughs> She was and definitely a big deal. She already, Tim McGraw had already hit the airwaves. So this, she this, opened for Rascal Flats from October 19th to November 3rd, 2006, uh, a month after, or the month that her album came out. And Tim McGraw, the single, was already a uh, billboard hit in June of that year. Well, if you want to believe the internet, what the internet tells you, that's fine. I'm just telling you that I didn't... <laughs> what I'm trying to say is I didn't know she was at the time. So um, finish digging your grave. What yeah. happened a month later? So a month or two later, I could, I could really turn the story on its head and make people feel sorry for me, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep up with a bit of why we were moving. But anyway, we're moving, yeah, et cetera, whatever. Uh, and I, I'm looking at this stuff. My daughter is two and a half at the time. I'm just like, and I have this moment of like, it's like this do or die moment of like, am I really going to take this with me to Tennessee? I don't care about this person. There's probably nobody. And so I toss it, throw all of it away. And yeah, uh, you know, and then, you know, a couple, I don't know, a couple of, uh, oh, I forgot something, shit. Like, so after, right after that too, like right after it happens, we were like Googling her and looking her up uh, and trying to figure all this different stuff and found her MySpace page just to throw it back to where, where, how long ago this actually was. And one of the photos of her and Nora at the air show uh, one of her photos of her and then there was her profile picture on her MySpace page. So it was this really cool thing. I took a screenshot of it, lost that too, uh, ended up throwing everything away. Uh, and then when Taylor Swift kind of like finally hits my my radar, my, my cultural radar, maybe, does she start winning Grammys with that album? It was right around that time where she got like got all the Grammy nominations. I was just like, is that the same person? And start doing the math and math uh, and figure it out that that's who it is. But then keep it from Nora because I don't want Nora to know that we had this stuff because she wasn't a huge fan then. But right about the time that like 1989 came out or maybe the album before that, Nora, you know, with everybody started becoming like this huge fan of Taylor Swift. And that's when uh, mom, uh, my wife was like, yeah, well, and you know, you met her this time and you had dad threw away all the all the signed stuff that she gave personalized stuff to you. And so that's basically when Nora decided she wasn't going to uh, 
uh, recognize me as a parental figure anymore. But uh, yeah, that was the story. I didn't know. And in my defense, I still don't think that album was out. It definitely wasn't a big deal yet. It, it was on the cusp. That's why she was flying. She was flying from the Greensboro Barbecue Festival. The Greensboro Barbecue Festival. That does not strike me as something that's like the big time. I mean... Okay, I've watched Nashville, okay? I'm, <laughs> I know how the country music scene works. Yeah. Uh, she already had a... I mean, Tim McGraw went double platinum that summer. So I'm going to push back. Anyway, that's amazing. I just love in my mind like this moment of like Nora... And you like sitting down and be like, honey, you met Taylor Swift, but I didn't love you enough to keep the stuff. It's like me and Michelle sitting her down on the couch. You'd be like, uh, daughter, there's something we need to talk to you about. Yeah, we <laughs> We've hidden this from you for too long. She's like, am, I, yeah, am I adopted? No, 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 no. Don't worry about that. <laughs> yeah, it was, I mean, trust me, I still get, and I, I usually am not like a, you know, t- tag somebody on Twitter, but I felt so bad about it. Uh, like in the kind of early days of Twitter, I, I was like, I just like, you know, I was like at Taylor Swift, whatever. I was like, hey, one time you met my daughter uh, at an air show and I threw everything away on accident. Uh, Any way you could send, she never responded. So, so yeah, so, you know, Taylor, if you hear this uh, and you want to help me out, get me out of the doghouse, the a perpetual doghouse that I'm in my, uh, in for my daughter, uh, feel free to send some swag our way. I'll take it. That's yeah, if you're Tay lurking on the uh, Until We Get Canceled pod, welcome. <laughs> Please come on the pod. Yeah, come Please on. come on the pod. <laughs> I heard you mentioned Jesus a few times and Lover and your recent stuff. Yeah, we can make it work. It doesn't. It's, Jesus not required. If, if you want to come on, we'll... Also, we'll... you said the word Methodist and Evermore, and it was like our biggest cultural moment <laughs> in three decades. I know. Oh, man. When I say... I was so excited. <laughs> Well, the saddest part is that she just says, I parked the car right beside the Methodist and the school that used to be ours. She doesn't even say like hospital, church, college. Yeah. You know. But as someone who grew up parking my car between the Methodist and the school that I went to, I felt represented. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I thought this is how the main line is going to make its way back. (laughs) (laughs) Through Evermore. Right. (laughs) So when your dad tells you that you met Taylor Swift and he didn't keep the memorabilia. That's what scripture was talking about when it said that a child leaves her parents. <laughs> yeah, I know. Goes out. Well, and for a long time, I had, the, I had the screenshot, right? Like I had the screenshot of the MySpace profile picture, but then that, that, that laptop got stolen. I was like, no. <laughs> so it's like, you know, and a copy of a book that I'm pretty sure would have made my career. But other than that, it's fine. But that, yeah, that got stolen. And that was before the time of like the cloud, at least before I was using it, which is not a good representation as we figured out about my personal timeline. My personal timeline only starts when I start acknowledging something, which is what we've learned here. <laughs> yeah. Nothing exists until Brian acknowledges it. This is like peak white guy on a podcast right now. I'm I'm living that moment. (laughs) Well, that would be a perfect segue into the liturgist talk, but we're going to have to save that until the second half of the episode. Oh my God. Yes, that would be perfect. Sorry, I'll save it. (laughs) No, no, it's fine. I I just wanted everybody to hear that uh, story from Brian because he told it to me when I recently became a Swifty. And uh, he's like, yeah, this is my Taylor Swift story. And it's just so beautifully 2006, you know, MySpace, (laughs) 
uh, air shows. Everything else, air shows, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's a perfect, it's a nice in, like, encapsulation of North Carolina, too. It's like, what, what are you going to do to take your kids out? And I hit the air, the air show over at the Lexington Airport. Okay, why not? Let's do it. So Physical media, yeah. also, yeah, very 2006. Yep, yep, an actual CD. Yeah, it was, it was a lot. It's a little time capsule of, of uh, Taylor Swift uh, memorabilia. So yeah, so if, you know, if, if Country Music Hall of Fame, anybody ever wants to just kind of like download, bring this up, I'm happy to kind of just, I'll, I'll sell the rights to this, whatever we need. We'll have to figure out what we need to keep this podcast going for a couple of years and that'll be the price uh, to get us full time on the pod farm. So Taylor. I'm just going to start uh, praying that um, whoever stole your laptop <laughs> Reads the book and or sees the screenshot and is convicted to return it. Yeah, I think that's I think that time has passed. <laughs> or they or they changed a bunch of the details and made a made a they there's some famous author now uh, with my uh, with my Olive Garden spy story novel that I wrote. <laughs> oh wow! Yeah. Wow! Yeah, we should turn it into a um, you know an audio drama like War of the Worlds. <laughs> Yeah, it was it was a it was a first crack at at novel writing. <laughs> so there was it was you know a mid twenty something guy who worked as a waiter at Olive Garden, uh, and I happened to be a mid twenty something guy working as a waiter at the Olive Garden when I wrote it. So you know it's a, it's one it's you know life imitating art, uh, art imitating life, whatever one you want to do, uh, and then just throw in some CIA agents that that sells. You know I wouldn't even need to get an MFA if I had written if I'd ever had the copy of that book. So yeah, if you're out there. Uh, Taylor Swift and or the person who stole my laptop. I'll, I'll take both of those things back. So it's called Endless Breadsticks for You, or I don't know. Yes. How can we turn that into part of the title? Big Minnesota news just broke, y'all. A Rod is officially buying the Timberwolves for $1.5 billion. Yeah. Man, I've said it before. Fuck A Rod. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, hey, I'll say this though. I, better than the Taylor family who has owned, I, I don't care about the Timberwolves. Uh, however, I would like to, if we rewind, Isaac, when you're giving me so much crap about them drafting LaMelo, I wish we I had drafted LaMelo. <laughs> this is the perfect thing of um, of what happens to the of, to the Timberwolves. They try to make the smart decision and they end up not drafting the one guy that seems to be uh, playing well. Uh, but yeah, I mean, from what I understand, the Taylor family... I don't know if I should name check them or not, but they they haven't spent a lot of money uh, in the past, so the, the it bodes well. Hopefully that A Rod maybe I mean he's probably going to move him to Seattle. Honestly, is what's going to end up happening because I'm pretty sure he has some Seattle connections. Uh, but yeah, I, I just saw that Doesn't as well. Seattle already have an NBA team. No, no, they're no, in Oklahoma City. Moved to Oklahoma City in 2010. Oh, yeah. Right, it shows how much I care about the NBA. <laughs> wow, because they took a stand for Black Lives Matter. Is that why you don't care? <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> oh, you yeah. see how it is. That yeah, I mean, you are from Texas. You're like, you know, no kneeling or anything else for you. Oh my huh? god! Oh my god! Attacked. Don't put that juju on me. <laughs> All right. Well, we wanted to start off this episode with some pop culture stuff because there's a take that I've very casually dropped in a few episodes that the people have um, asked me to elaborate on, and it's that. The movie Get Out, released in 2017, is exactly what it explains exactly what my beef with Hamilton the musical is. Have y'all both seen Get Out? Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I've never. I don't see horror movies. That's just a thing about me. So no, I, I. But I know the the general plot. If there's like a big spoiler, I probably don't know it. But I don't think it's probably important. 
Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's not really like a jump scare horror movie. It's like just, it's a thriller or like a, you know, pretty tense thing, but it's not like, oh shit, someone jumped out from behind a corner and scared you. Um, I didn't see it for a long time for that same reason, CJ, because I, I, I don't care about horror movies. And then I finally watched it one night. It's, 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 yeah, I think the way Isaac just described it is perfect, but it's definitely not like scary in the way that you would, a horror movie might be. So worth watching. Yeah, I think that his second one, Us, is that's more scary. like that's a horror <laughs> yeah. movie. I didn't yeah. even touch that, and I didn't even I didn't even look at the poster when I went to the theater. Uh, just like just <laughs> just look, just don't even look at it because it's too much. Uh, I didn't even like, see the scissors. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> like, I went to see if Beale Street could talk, which is a, a lovely, like very like subtle, beautifully done movie. And they showed a trailer for us yeah. when I went to see if Bill Street could talk. And so I cried in the theater before the movie had even started. I got so freaked out. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Man. I just, Maybe like, you should watch in, it, CJ. I was in a weird space, like, space emotionally, but I really was not like prepared to see a horror movie trailer for like when I was going to see my like indie movie, like Oscar bait, you know? Uh, speaking of inappropriate movie trailers, I recently saw the Demon Slayer anime movie in theaters. My first movie back uh, since the pandemic. And there was a trailer for a Jason Statham movie called The Wrath of Man. Before <laughs> it. I was just like, yeah, this is... I mean, I would see them both, but I feel like most people are not... There's not a like circle in that Venn diagram. <laughs> it's just you. But yeah. uh, so anyway, Hamilton and Get Out. I don't think that you need to explain the plot to me. I think I've kind of got it. Okay, cool. Well, I just, so part of what, you know, obviously part of the very simple premise of making this comparison is that the story of Get Out is about older white people extending their life by transplanting part of their brain into the bodies of Black people. And in the movie, you know, the plot is like this this white girl brings black men home to her to meet her family after dating them and then there are all these people there they they bid on who will get to be transplanted into the person's body and then you know he escapes and all this other shit happens but the the fundamental premise here is that these older white folks that we meet in the movie have different like motivations for why they want to do this while they want to have their like like brain transplanted into the body of a black person. And most of them are about like things like one person wants uh, to be more athletic. Another person says to the black character played by Daniel Kaluuya um, that being black is cooler than it's ever been and he wants to be cool. But the person who ends up like bidding the most money to uh, enter the body of the main character ends up wanting to do it because he's a, he was a former photographer. So is the character he's blind now and he want he like admires his work and wants to like literally take, he says, I want your eyes. Like he wants to see this experience, experience of the world, like through the eyes of this black character. And as he's explaining to him the process of the transplantation, he says to him that their brains will basically be joined together so that uh, Chris, the character's name, will still be there and still be present because they don't want to sever his like connection to his nervous system, but only as an audience member watching what 
this white man will be doing in his body because Chris will be living in this uh, realm that in the movie is called the sunken place. And so basically that's exactly what happens in Hamilton. Like these white, you know, colonial settlers are like transplanted into the bodies of black and brown people where their identity is erased so that they can like be this white person and their sort of racial and ethnic realities are audience members to this performance of white colonialism and and genocide that is the founding of America. Um, and I wanted to especially draw this out because there's a, a really important quote from Lin-Manuel Miranda that I think gets to the heart of the comparison. And he says that Hamilton is a story of America then told by America now. Meaning that the America of now is the America of racial diversity and the America then is the story of homogeneously white America, which is a complete misrepresentation of what the reality of 18th century America was. We know in the South, there were more Africans enslaved in the South than there were white people there during that period of time. And, you know, there are like Black people in the musical that are, you know, very casually referred to. Thomas Jefferson, like, has like a one throwaway line about Sally Hemings. He's like telling her to like get his coat. And because he's played by a Black man, it completely erases the like reality that Thomas Jefferson raped Sally Hemings for years, you know, starting at the age of like 13. And, and also it allows Manuel Miranda to sort of talk about what exactly Alexander Hamilton would have done if he had lived longer to combat slavery. You know, there are several lines about this where it's like, oh yeah, if you, if you just had more time, you would have you would have spoken out against slavery. Not when you let not when you lived, of course, or not any of these other people in in the musical, but if, you know, we in in the reality of the musical, you would have done it. We know. We know. And I think that there's a deeper theological vision to all this too. And in the musical, you know, we have George Washington when he's sort of like riding off into the sunset at the end of the first act or don't, whatever. Don't ruin this part for me. I'm going to. <laughs> no, don't ruin <laughs> Singing about how we'll all sit under our own vine and fig tree and no one will make them afraid in this nation that we've made. You know, it's sort of a riff on Micah yeah. from the Old Testament. Part of and, it's an actual quote from his... I mean, yeah. part of it's an actual quote from his farewell address. Right, yeah. I, yeah, so he's quoting scripture and then he adds the, they'll be safe in this nation we made. Okay, well, who in that moment when George Washington is writing that, is he talking about, I mean, not Black people because he had slaves until he died when he freed them. But, you know, there there's this like notion that there's this kind of deeper theological work going on, going on of this like, you know, providence guiding the founding of America. And the entire musical ends with Alexander, Alexander Hamilton's wife seeing like the beatific vision with Hamilton in it. And to me, it just says something that like, there's this bit in just after what I was talking about in Get Out where, uh, 
this like white guy is like speaking to Chris through a TV right before the operation. And he explains to him that he's, he's a part of an experiment that's been getting, um, that's been, you know, gone through trial and error for decades and now has been perfected by this family called the Armitage family. And that, uh, what, what Chris is getting to be a part of is the perfection of this experiment where all of his physical advantages that he's enjoyed his entire life, not earned or like just been given as a gift, will be combined with the mental superiority and like, you know, intelligence of a white person to form a more perfect human being. And uh, the video ends with him saying, in time, maybe you'll even start to feel like a member of the family. So here's this, you know, person saying like, hey, when you become more white, or when you have a white person living in your mind and your blackness is taking like, and your personality is taking this backseat as an audience member to the performance of whiteness through your black body, then you'll be a part of this experiment and this family. At the end of Hamilton, we have these black characters or brown characters standing in the beatific vision, having realized and participated in the experiment of the United States of America. When in reality, during that time, they were all have, they were not in positions of power. They all had this very different experience, one of slavery and genocide and, and, you know, mass murder. So, but that's the whole point of Hamilton, right? Is to get a young generation post Obama of like the children of people of color, second or first generation immigrants to see themselves in the white founding myth of America so that they can become part of the family. Like by performing, you know, this 1776 bullshit. And and the thing that drives me so nuts about it is that it completely erases not just the actual like cruelty experienced by people of color in that time, but also the role they played in resisting that. And um, this is something we're going to get back to in the liturgist pod, but like their own, you know, the their own like incredible people and stories and cultural heritage from that time is now completely erased so that they can play the white guy on the $10 bill. So that's why Hamilton and Get Out Beef. Okay, I, I didn't want to agree with this. <laughs> <laughs> as I mentioned before. But one of the things that's interesting too is like, if you want to make like a, a weird kind of like theological connection to that is like when you start thinking about theology and like, and how kind of like uh, black liberation theology kind of came out of that same thing that you're talking about, Isaac, which is, which is this idea of like, we don't want to be defined or constrained by Western whites, you know, terms and and uh, products or whatever. So yes, yeah, so I, I, I can see that. I think, I think, I mean, I think there's probably an argument there somewhat for, you know, a kid seeing themselves in history. And, I, and I'm not going to, I'm not the one that's going to make that argument. That that would be my guess is how somebody might argue against this. But yeah, I, 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 I like I said, I didn't want to agree. <laughs> Does this mean I have to erase Hamilton off my phone now? I don't, I don't, I don't, I still enjoy it. I know you think it's shitty rapping too, uh, but. That's the music is terrible. It's so, I, I love it. I, I still like it. I, I, but I, I think that this is, yeah, I mean, you got to give people what they've been clamoring for. They've, they wanted to know this take uh, for, for episodes now. And so you, you, we had to give it to them. So. Well, liberals get so mad at, uh, at, 
people shitting on Hamilton because they think it makes them not racist to like yes. black culture. <laughs> okay, that's like not not kneeling, like not liking or dissing Hamilton is the liberal version of like kneeling during the anthem at a football game. <laughs> oh man, <laughs> that triggered by it. Uh, well. I, I don't want to like transition. Have either of you seen, this is another just a weird get out theory that when I was, I was trying to figure out what you were going to say about this. So I did some research. I couldn't find anything. But I did find this. Uh, have either of you seen uh, Being John Malkovich? I actually haven't. Okay. Well, it, it's basically, they find this doorway and the doorway leads from the, uh, into the mind of John Malkovich. And the, one of the main characters is uh, Catherine Keener, who is also in Get Out. Mm-hmm. And so there's this whole fan theory that became approved by Jordan Peele that uh, after, um, after she kind of changes her name and leaves and then basically perfects it. And that's how Get Out starts is, is that it's the same it's in the same universe. So if, if you're interested in just going on a weird deep dive about that, um, there's a ton of stuff out there now. And it's, it's kind of fun to read. Uh, just These are the type of people that are just online so much. And if they were just focused their energy in any other direction, we'd probably have, would have had the, the uh, COVID vaccine a lot sooner or, or something would have happened. But uh, it takes a lot of brain power to kind of connect those two places. Uh, but worth, worth a read. Uh, not, not, as, not as heavy as kind of what you, what you were just bringing up. But it, I found it greatly amusing as I was reading it. So I'm sure that I'm not the only person who's thought about this or talked about it. I mean, like Toni Morrison actually sponsored an entire play called like The Haunting of Lin-Manuel Miranda that was about how much both the playwright and Toni Morrison hated Hamilton, which I don't know that much about it. So I can't get into like the arguments of that play. (laughs) But (laughs) it's, uh, I mean, like, I I don't think I disagree with your uh, analysis Having not seen Get Out, I like couldn't make that connection myself. But it is, I mean, like, it's just, it's also, um, I mean, it's difficult, right? Because also like Hamilton originally got so big because there was all this controversy over its casting, right? Because its casting call was specifically looking for non-white actors. So it's like, on the one hand, I think your analysis is spot on. On the other hand, it is like, one of the very few Broadway plays where like majority non-white casts are going to consistently get paid a lot of money. I don't think I, yeah, that's what I was thinking about. Yeah, <laughs> I don't I mean, know I, enough about like Broadway, but like, it's just both, I mean, both things can be true at once. I guess I just don't know enough about Broadway to um, think about what that, what those dynamics look like. I mean, I think that the reality is that, uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda was not poor before he made Hamilton. <laughs> but, you know, he definitely isn't now either. I mean, the other thing, the other reason, I mean, you could just look at the way he stumps for like uh, Wall Street continuing to impoverish Puerto Rico to know that his politics are terrible. But, you know, yeah, I, I don't like begrudge anybody like who personally who worked in it thinking that they were like, you know, whatever, it was a job. Um, but I think overall... How different is Hamilton than that like woke CIA recruitment video that came out on the internet last week? <laughs> I, I missed that. <laughs> I, I you missed it? I totally. Seconds. I've been I've been writing a book, and so I, I missed it. I guess. That's, oh man. Well, basically, it's this like Latinx woman walking through the halls of Langley, being like, "I'm I'm a first generation immigrant. I've been." diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder. I'm intersectional and I'm an agent at the CIA. <laughs> oh no. I'm looking at it. Yep. I'm 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 seeing it now. I will watch this afterward. Okay. 
I just love that she includes their diagnosis with GAD. No, it's like, bitch, we all have anxiety. (laughs) Um, I will say that Hamilton did bring up like the absolute worst of the Tumblr brain worms, which is why like the phrase like Femboy Thomas Jefferson and Amiku Binder is something that you can you can say in that order and I will know what you're talking about. And I'm so sorry for anyone I've just triggered with that phrase. <laughs> well, speaking of... Um, triggered? Speaking of uh, <laughs> being triggered and like, yeah. well, white supremacy, uh, should, we tra- should we transition to the liturgists? Let's do it. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> when, pray tell, friends, did you all first encounter the liturgist podcast or anyone associated with it? I mean, obviously, Gunger was big uh, worship-wise for a long time. So, I mean, I think I probably started hearing a lot of his songs in high school. And then when I, I just, like, I don't know when the liturgist started. I know that I started listening to the podcast when I came back from the world race. And they had, they were kind of just transitioning into kind of a new phase where I think like at first, I think it had started as a little more like evangelicals getting progressive and they were just starting to get into discussions of spiritual trauma and like the Enneagram and stuff. Um, and so I, just, I think that's when I started listening and I didn't listen for very long because my life got busy and I stopped listening to podcasts for a while. But I think that like when I was actively listening, they were still, I think probably would have described themselves all as all as Christians and maybe like ex-evangelical, but still within like the progressive Christian space. Did you know that the Enneagram was developed by Kabbalistic Jews in the desert? <laughs> Is there by the Desert Fathers? It's yeah, the, desert, the fathers. desert Fathers. <laughs> Brian, what about you? Also, when CJ says Gunger, uh, he means Michael Gunger, the... Oh, no, I guess Gunger was his performance name. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I only knew one song uh, of his, but was it beautiful? You know, Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, Brian, what about you? Um, I, I mean, it's probably been. I think it didn't it like start in like 2017, something like that. I, I feel like I first noticed it maybe like two years, two or three years ago. I, I I'm, I'm not in that place like that, and and I think I noticed it first as kind of CJ how you described it, like that, like deconstruction into deconstruction, maybe reconstruction into like a progressive mindset. And I'm, I'm already kind of just like biased against that, <laughs> as bad as that sounds. I just, because like, I just didn't, I, it's not biased, the wrong word. I didn't go through that very much. Like I, I kind of always have been in on a more progressive side of things anyway. And um, just trying to get myself some street cred after that Taylor Swift story. But I was I, about to say, except when it comes to Taylor Swift, you were progressive on the, I was not. on the bandwagon from the beginning. Yeah, I, I've I've only been I've only been on the bandwagon of two things. Oh God, I've only been on the bandwagon of two things ahead of time. One was Hunger Games. I was all in. I knew it before it was popular, and the other was Hamilton. <laughs> Just to put, I, I was all in on Hamilton way before it became a thing. Uh geez. Anyway, uh, so like, yeah, so like, I just didn't have much interest in it because I I I just didn't I don't. I just didn't connect to that for lack of a better term. Um, and I, I knew vaguely that there was like a science mic <laughs> involved or something. And that, is, wasn't he Methodist or isn't he Methodist or something? Or am I getting conflating two things? But, uh, I don't really remember. Yeah, but it was something like that. And, and I vaguely knew of Gunger like as a, uh, as a band. But 
um, you know, by the time that I kind of figured out what it was, I, I started listening. I mean, I may have listened to like one podcast. I was like, oh, nope, this isn't for me. <laughs> so, so mine, I, it's been just kind of been out there for the past couple of years. I have a couple of friends who are like really into it, especially at the beginning. And I think Sarah mentioned this, Sarah Zar, when she, she was on for the first podcast that, you know, the early days of that community were something that were pretty important to a lot of people. And then it just kind of spiraled out of control for, for, uh, well, her, I'll, and I, I would assume a lot of other people too. So yeah, so I, I guess it's probably been three or four years, uh, but I, I've never really connected with it. So, Well, I I wanted to talk about it because, uh, I mean, a part of the reason this podcast exists is because the liturgist sucks so much. And because you're right, it does hold like, it is like the sort of biggest ex-evangelical space online, or at least a founding one. Fact check. Uh, the liturgist officially started in 2014. Oh, wow. it, was thought, of, it was more of a musical group and then it transitioned into more of a podcast only situation. Wow. Wow. Um, yeah, I thought it was when I thought I was in seminary when it started. Uh, first of all, very resentful that they got the name the liturgist. The liturgist yeah. <laughs> It's too good for them. I, I was just going to say that that's the one thing that's just like, damn, that is a good name. <laughs> so Yeah. But secondly, also there, I mean, I think they've gotten canceled and come back from it multiple times for an assortment of different things. I know that Gunger at one point was going by the name of a Hindu deity instead of his name, which is Michael Gunger. <laughs> and so... <laughs> that's how like that's how far off the rails they got. But uh, uh, recently, someone shared a uh, shared a screenshot from their like Facebook page of a meme that they had put out, and it like caught my attention as something that we should talk about on the pod. Okay, this is <laughs> this is a. I mean, that someone shared it to my Facebook newsfeed. Every major decision around scripture was tied up with political agenda. You cannot separate the formation of the church from the pursuit of power. And all of that was a promo for an episode of their podcast called Josh, comma, a Christ. So it's season seven of their pod. And apparently they've made a commitment in the seventh season to only refer to Jesus as Josh. Oh. (laughs) Oh, so that's a thing. (laughs) They just call him Josh. And the reasoning there is that Jesus isn't a real name. It's an appropriation of the Hebrew name Yeshua, which, if it were being used today, is like oh, Josh. See, I, I was gonna, I was actually gonna give them the credit of a, of like a little bit of a, uh, what do you, the benefit of the doubt on this? Because I thought, and as you were talking about this, like, I was like, oh, maybe they're trying to like deconstruct this idea of like the Jesus in our head, and like you know, so we won't use the name of Jesus because, it's been, but no, they're just doing something completely stupid. I thought they were going like a Paul Tillich type of uh, route, but uh, this is just dumb. Anyway, keep going. No, it's just a joke it's that just, someone made on yeah. Tumblr in 2013. Uh, no, that, there's some politics here. That's part of the problem, but we won't oh, no, go no, down no. that rush. Oh, no. I just, I see that. <laughs> How many episodes has it been? The, and it comes out. Uh, <laughs> I just, maybe it's because of the internet that I'm on, but I feel like I see a variation of that tweet like every couple weeks where it's like, did you know Jesus could just be called Josh? And I'm like, yes, someone made the joke a long time ago. Anyway. I've never heard that before, so. 
Um, the internet that I'm on. I also, I took (laughs) biblical Hebrew in college and like people who like actually like get into biblical Hebrew are huge nerds and like love jokes about it. So. Oh, that, that I almost thought that was going to come back around on me. Like, well, Brian, I took biblical Hebrew. and I was like, no, it's just like, you know, the people that I know are like enormous nerds and love jokes about Hebrew. (laughs) I listened to the episode, Josh, a Christ. Uh, just for this. I did it for the pod farm. And boy, was it one of the worst uh, 77 minutes of my life. <laughs> um, Michael Gunger starts the podcast by talking about how, how the problem with Jesus is that we, we, we worship Jesusism and we've been totally disconnected from the Christ. And he starts with a clip from Richard Rohr from an interview from 2016. <laughs> and he's like, let me show you exactly what the difference between Jesusism and Christ is. And he's like, I'm going to tell you a story about this alien world called Fleber and the Fleber people and their religion about this, this alien named Beborg. And then basically like <laughs> tells the Jesus story except about Beborg, including like songs he made up about Beborg, it's is really, really, really horrible. And he's like, see, the fact that I can like tell the same story as if it were on a different planet shows that Christianity is stupid. <laughs> but um, I want to read y'all like kind of well, hold on a second. So wait, like, like the point is wait a minute. I, I don't know that I'm tracking this at all. So like the point is that because he huh, I I I'm like you broke my brain, I think. Like he because he could tell the story that proved like, but he knows that. Okay, never mind. Just go to your next thing. I, no, I will no, try. No. He's he's saying that like, okay, these the the story ends with you as a human being like, well, Bleeborg talking <laughs> to a pastor in the Bleeborgian church, saying like, because apparently it's all about how like Bleeborg helps your antennas radiate at a higher frequency, and you a human like viewing this culture say, well, I have no antennae. And so Bleeborg is like totally irrelevant to me. And then the pastor taking out a ray gun, which is the cross in this story and pointing it at you to kill you. Because if you don't exist within this sort of context, then you must be destroyed. Never mind the fact that like, we don't get any account of like, this alien's response to like your presence. <laughs> There's a lot happening there. I know sure. a lot. <laughs> Sorry. I, I just got totally like that bent my mind in a, not in a positive way. I was just, I couldn't figure out where he was going. Anyway, that's fine. Well, just, he's saying that like if an alien came and heard our story about Jesus, his, the, the alien's response would show us how self-centered we are in thinking that we are important enough that like, you know, God would come down and like be incarnate in our bodies and just for us on this one planet. Like, see, when you think about how uh, absorbed, self-absorbed it is, then it just totally unravels. Because if there were an alien, they'd be like, well, what is Jesus to me? Checkmate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. But all of that gets into the uh, sort sort of central anthropology of the liturgist, at least in season seven. And I'm going to read I'm going to read you all this quote, and I'm just going to let you 
respond naturally. They they have not heard this. And I it was painful to even transcribe it. I did the best I could. The nature of the human ego is to split reality into me and not me. This is duality. Part of their mission in the seventh season is to debunk dual Christianity and to create non-dual Christianity. So I'm continuing. This makes my feeling of being me inherently a feeling of incompleteness, brokenness, and shame. This is our original sin that we see in the allegory of Adam and Eve. The archetypal story of Jesus Christ is the story of a man who is a sort of second Adam, a man who is a living example for what is possible for humans to not be mired in the shame of our animal existence, but to live fully at home in this very moment of embodied life. When we divorce Jesus, the human and finite, finite aspect and from Christ to the divine or infinite context, and we try to make him into an external savior to rescue us from out of our shame that comes from someplace else, we are left with the shame and fear-ridden Jesusism that will never be a catalyst for anything than anything more than more shame, more fear, and more violence. When we see it all together, though, the Yeshua and Christ all together, we see an invitation to join him in the fullness of our lives in this moment. He becomes an archetype, a key to our homecoming, our salvation. I am I, gonna, am I also I, going to have to like disown Paul Tillich after this? Like, this, this, I see where this is going. Go ahead, CJ. You'll have to decide. No, it's just. I mean, like, I, I I'm the only person on here who hasn't already been to Div School, but I, as I'm listening to it, I'm I'm genuinely trying to take this in a the best light, but I, I don't quite understand if, is he saying that, is he saying that Christianity inherently sees Jesus as either human or divine and they're trying, but I don't, I don't think I quite get what he's trying to say. Okay. That's a great question that will take me into some more quotes. Okay, let me let me um, let me say something about this though first. Yeah, yeah, go right. Because I I also think, and we don't have to dwell on this, but I think that this is a reaction of a very specific type of theology that they are de- deconstructing, and so this idea that Christianity can yeah. only be this one thing that is paramount in this quote, this idea that, well, I can't think of a Christianity different than this, so it must not exist. Uh, and then that's what that what underlies a lot of this de- deconstruction stuff and things that I just drive me nuts about it. But it's like. It's like whenever you, you I, should I say, there was a, doesn't matter. There was a Christian person, like Christian music person who came out and was like, and basically had a pretty public falling out of faith. And before that, he was so certain about all of these different, he had this like very tight systematic theology. And it's like, yeah, well, when, when you punch holes in that, uh, it's, you are, basically, it just is a concept of a very small God, like that all of this thing. And then this very small God that you're basically never getting past the thing that you're trying to deconstruct. And that's what that quote told me. Anyway, I'm now I'm well, triggered. Great. Perfect. This no, is going to be awesome. You're 100, you're 100% right, though, that they think Christianity is only the sort of evangelical penal substitutionary yeah. atonement thing. That's the only way to think about it. And so what needs to happen, getting back to CJ's good leading question, is that the problem with Jesus is that we're so focused on him being a historical person when as Gunger posits multiple times in the episode, we can't even be sure that he ever existed. 
I mean, can we trust the people that like recorded his existence historically? No, in Michael Gunger's opinion. So first of all, we can't trust that he existed. But also, if he did exist, that's a problem because his, his existence and his story has been totally caught up in these cultural tendrils that need to be cleared away that we can like let go of this notion that his history matters and realize that Yeshua or Josh <laughs> is really just a particular expression of this bigger thing called the Christ, this bigger archetype. And the best thing we can take from Jesus's teaching is that, and I'm not kidding, a guy named Mason on, on the pod says, he lived the most fulfilling life in history. Hmm, where have we heard that before? <laughs> yeah, but it's just like the guy who was like a poor itinerant rabbi who got nailed to a cross. <laughs> oh, <I see. laughs> yes. And tortured to death, yeah. He lived the most fulfilling life. Oh, yeah, that is, and that, that that's just another thing of, like you said, everything is underpinned by this kind of like idea of like, how Jesus is supposed to operate in the world, like this, the, the, the atonement. And then you have to get the shit kicked out of him in order for this to, you know, for this to really matter because it couldn't happen any other way. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I, I, I can see what you when you mentioned the Tillich stuff too. And like, for me, like, I, I actually don't mind this idea of like being able to think about, you know, that the way we can concept God or that we think about or even talk about or even kind of like experience, acknowledge God, there, that there is, that maybe we, that there's stuff that's beyond our, our knowing, I guess I could say, like, I, to me, that's like what revelation is. Like, there's always something like, we can't put that in a box. And so I can, like, if I'm, be, if I'm being gracious, I can see that in this, but it just, it doesn't ever go to that place. Like, this is just all about like saying like, I don't like that thing that we've been trying to get rid of for so long. So here's a new way of kind of like trying to package it and, and strip it away from all of the, the stuff. But this is also, this is also like, you see this in progressive Christianity all the time. Like this kind well, of like Christology. Brian, I'm going to stop you because there, there's so much more okay, that go, I go. need to unpack. So the problem with Jesus is that we think about him too much as a historical person. And we need to let go of that. Um, but we think that way because we are, we, every human being is an ego obsessed with ideas. And that's why the church is obsessed with power because whenever ideas, when people have ideas, then they're going to disagree, which is part of the reason why Jesus was killed, by the way, because people were living in their shame and their ego and could not appreciate Jesus's call to love. Um, not for any other reason. It's that they didn't like love. But uh, there's a lengthy section in the middle of the pod where he starts talking about Joseph Campbell who wrote um, a book about the concept of myth. What is it called? Oh, I forget. Is it The Golden Bow? Is that the, the Golden Bow. Yeah. Yep. And he talks about the hero's journey. And well, guess what? Joseph Campbell, uh, there's a quote that Gunger reads, it doesn't matter if Jesus was an actual person, his value is our belief in him. And so Gunger goes on to posit, what if Yeshua or Josh was not the only Christ? What happens if we see him as the archetype of what is possible in human existence? We are all there is. We are divine. And Christ represents the hero's journey. And we need to strip Jesus of all of that context so that we 
can, instead of understanding him as coming to save us from sin, understand his hero's journey and all the setbacks as the overcoming of the ego and the return to the self. And so we see throughout history, the hero's journey becomes an archetype for people overcoming the ego and returning to the self. And so anyone who's accomplished this amazing feat is also Christ. So, and I'm not kidding. Gunger goes on to say, Buddha is a Christ figure. Muhammad is a Christ figure. Abraham and Moses and Joshua are Christ figures. They show us the way to the self. And Christ is the self. Another actual quote, Christ is the radiant head. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus didn't care about laws or society or anything that he talks about in his teaching. He just cares about living in the moment. So... um, (laughs) Sorry, was that, that was you though. That wasn't Gunker. <laughs> no, they do say the thing that he doesn't care about laws or society and he just wanted everybody to like have a good time in the moment. Oh, I mean, wedding, yeah. wedding so at Cana. What, what's so interesting listening to this is, well, like Peter, uh, the reason that I know Peter Campbell and I'm assuming the reason you know it, uh, Isaac, is because we, we both like we're in religious studies programs and he's a pretty fundamental person to the field of like religious studies and it's it's always kind of interesting to me to listen to people who read him and and take his work in in a less academic route um just because <laughs> it doesn't seem like it, to me it doesn't seem super helpful in shaping a spiritual worldview it, i think it's really helpful if you're like trying to understand like uh you know like ancient myths or whatever I mean, like, and, but there's also, there's such a, there's such a field of scholarship around Campbell's work specifically. And so many people like refuting what he did. And there's like lots of, you know, ethnographies and there's like, there's just, there's a whole academic field of people responding to Peter Campbell and pointing out the ways in which his, his hypotheses like fall short. So it's always kind of fascinating that he's the one who gets brought up in these like archetype conversations. Well, this gets to the first, like really important conclusion that I wanted to draw out in the midst of all these like horrible quotes is that there are there is there's a history to ideas people who listen to this pod that don't want us to get like down into the weeds of another like theology hole like you know people have this is what I don't think either they do or maybe they don't but they certainly don't present themselves this way but there's a like a history to Christian thought where people have thought about it differently not according to Michael Gunger. He's presenting all of this like it's his original understanding of Christianity. Right. And like he's discovering this shit and he's enlightened because he is. But everything that he's talking about is literally just his 18th and 19th century European liberal theology. I mean, it's just all shit that people like Schleiermacher yep. and all these idiots were like writing <laughs> uh, like basically almost 125 years ago or if not more, I mean, 200 years ago. It's just like nothing about what I've read in any of this is new. And yet Gunger would have you believe that he's like creating this new non-dual Christianity. But the idea that we need to strip Jesus of like his cultural tendrils and, and like stop thinking about him as a historical person or stop thinking about him as divine and just start thinking about him as like a good guy or, and then like his story as a bigger archetype 
that goes all the way back to Thomas Jefferson, like, you know, cutting out miracles from his version of the Bible. Like, this stuff is not new. And um, I, I'd say it's even. I, I I might even like say that it's even worse than that because it's it's like I was <laughs> I was trying to think of like what's what's the worst version of supersessionism, right? Like what's like where it's like all of a sudden you're you're porting the Christian theology and the Christian kind of faith dominance, if you will, like onto all of these other religions. And in 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 a in a gracious light, this is many many paths up the same mountain type of theology. And but I I think pretty easily this could be we're all essentially the same Christian, if you want to call it Christian or not. And that, that's like Karl Rahner and, and stuff like that, where it's just like, yeah, well, there's truth everywhere, but eventually Jesus is the one, you know, that makes us into, that saves us or whatever. And so like, there, there's hints of that in this too, where all of a sudden, like we are, if, we're, if you're saying, well, Buddha is a Christ and, 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 and Islam, it's like, it makes me think of Oprah. You're a Christ and you're a Christ. Um, <laughs> but it is like, like suddenly there's, there's, some, there's a distinctive that's getting lost not only about Christianity, but that is, like I said, getting ported into other traditions that he's definitely not a part of um, and, and trying to turn it into this very broad kind of like one level of like terrible spirituality that um, will eventually involve crystals, I'm sure. Um, but anyway, <laughs> but it's, it's just like, it makes everything kind of flat. And, and, and to me, that's, that's almost more offensive than the kind of like, the, like what you're saying, like the Christian theological stuff is, is just like, yeah, this is boring. Like I, this shit's just boring to me. It's like, okay, fine. It's much more interesting and difficult to keep a, like a, a like the duality, like the human and divine of Jesus in kind of context with each other or in, in conversation than this kind of shit. This, this stuff bores. Anyway, anyway, no, I, I'm totally triggered now. So thanks, uh, Isaac. This is going to be a perfect afternoon for me to... Uh, well, I mean, it's even worse than that, though, because the history of trying to erase Jesus's particular identity as a Jew is fraught with the history of modern understandings of race and whiteness and some of the worst shit in the history of human beings that, by the way, Gunger thinks that this way of thinking is going to get you out of but actually, this is where it starts by yeah. saying Jesus's particular historical location and his identity as a Jewish person is hindering you as a Christian from really understanding who he is, like all the laws that he didn't really care about. And like the idea that, you know, the Christ was this particular political figure in Second Temple Judaism as they were living under Roman occupation, that that is all an obstacle to real faith is racist as fuck. I mean, it is the history of Europeans creating what it means to be white because it's all about this notion of the self, this notion of, I mean, later it sort of morphs into this battle between the self and the ego, but like real true personhood is erasing your particular identity and like ascending to this universal enlightenment that is only reached by the overcoming of like basically any material conditions around you, which by the way, is why um, Gunger and his co-hosts see absolutely no place in this theology or no relevance in Jesus's life to anything he says about the, the politics of his day or the politics of the reign of God moving forward. Like, they literally are just saying that he got crucified because he told people to love one another and people didn't like that. Like he was not political and he's not political for them. So I'm going to read one more thing so that we can kind of wrap this up because I think people are getting the point. But like, (laughs) yeah, 
<laughs> never stopped, wanna, that's never stopped us before, though. So why not? Let's just keep going. <laughs> well, I want to get to what he, what they say in this episode is like the sort of culmination of all this stuff. How do we, how do we overcome the ego? You ask, listener, and boy, will I tell you. I believe that spirit. Again, this is quoting that spirit undergoes division and. The reason that spirit undergoes division and suffering is for completion. It is an erotic movement. And when this is said on the pod, like everybody starts hooting their asses off. Like, yes. Like, anyway, why do we imagine ourselves separate from others? It's for the eventual possibility of unity with them. It's an experience of completion. Why did God cast us out of the garden so he can find us again? Because and literally they say this, it's fun. Because if God is ultimately other, then God is a monster. Look at the world. But if, but if God is us, is this, well, we, God, are playing quite the kinky little game. This life is a game that Sorry, loses. I wish we, I wish we, I wish we had a recording of my face because I saw myself in the camera. <laughs> okay, sorry. Keep going. We do have a recording of your face, I think. <laughs> this life is a game that leaves room for us to make up whatever meaning we want. It's whatever we want. And if it's whatever we want, then, well, we are free to play. This is how Josh was able to say things like, don't worry about tomorrow or love your enemies. That's why he could gladly hang out with the most unsavory of characters. He saw that there was no one but his father. In his clear vision of that, he can become for us a door into his experience like a portal. That way, Josh Christ is not just an abstract archetype. He's potentially a figure or more than a figure. He's a living presence that can help us experience love and devotion by becoming that incarnated object of love and devotion. Yeah, there's some duality in that. Again, entire point of this season is to apparently overcome duality. But if we can embrace that duality, that when, fo that when followed wholeheartedly, it can lead us into non-dual union. Josh taught us to love each other. Why? Because love is what brings the two back to the one. So maybe it's okay to pray our prayers to Jesus or Beborg or whoever else. Maybe it's okay to love God. Because when you love God, what are you really loving? When we get down to what we love about anything, it's never anything but this. It's this experience. So what I love when I love anything is life itself. Experience itself is Christ. But what is Christ if not for the specifics of this moment? Jesus and Christ. No, sorry, Josh and Christ. <laughs> I slipped up in my transcription. <laughs> it's <laughs> the Josh is the inhale and the Christ is the exhale of reality, the specific and the formless. And then the podcast episode ends with Richard Rohr saying, the reason we have racism, sexism, homophobia, and planetary destruction is because we have not met the Christ. Mm. I mean, I, at first, I thought I was going to be most offended by the multiple uses of completion uh, in that <laughs> sentence, but uh, that's then it then it went all the way other. Uh, there's a lot to unpack there. There's a lot to unpack there. Um, I, I don't. I, like, go away, go, CJ. 
I just, again, it starts with like my thesis that like if Christians could care about sex about 15 to 20% less, we'd solve a lot of problems. Mm. Yep. <sighs> Brian, what were you going to say? No, go ahead. No, I, no. I, oh, was that it? Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I just, it's just like walking 16 blocks down the road to avoid walking past one house or something. It's just, it, it just feels like that's a terrible analogy, but it's like, it feels like, I, I don't even, like by the end of that, I was just like, my head was spinning and not in the way that I think that he probably wants it to be because it's just, it, it makes no sense. Like that, a lot of that stuff doesn't, maybe, maybe I just haven't unlocked my, my duality mind from Jesus and, and, and brought in Josh or whatever. Um, but like, I haven't been entered by Josh. <laughs> phrasing. Um, <laughs> um, this is this podcast. Or maybe, maybe you're needs, supposed to enter him. Oh or God. Yeah. I, he's a portal. I mean, I do think so. I do think that they, the, the passages that you have read to us, I've not listened to the liturgist since 2017, probably. And I do think so that I'm only going off of what you've told me today. And I do think they're probably, they're just like, they're operating in, I mean, they're operating in an understanding of religion that's very different from where we operate, which I think, like, despite, despite many, like, many people saying, con, saying to the contrary, like, I think we're all, we hold a fairly orthodox position, Ray, mm. <laughs> like, the resurrection and, mm. um, like, what Jesus's time on earth, like, looked like and what the purpose of Jesus coming to earth did like I do think we probably all hold fairly orthodox positions and so when I hear all of that I'm like wow like that is not at all what I believe um and it's not it's like I'm trying to like like listen to it charitably and not just make fun of them because it sounds silly but it also really does make me like it to me it's like a really sad view of the world which is like if that's if if I only viewed Christ as like being like being in the presence of Christ as being in like the present moment or like understanding Christ as just uh, an archetype, like I don't know that I would even make the effort to continue to like believe in that tradition. And so I'm trying to understand like what's going on there. Well, I uh, yeah, 100% agree. And, and I can, I'm going to try to stop dunking and, and get serious because I do have sympathy for folks who find some comfort in this because at the end of the day, they're trying to say things like, if you've been told that you're sinful or shameful by your shitty Baptist pastor, like, you know, you should love yourself. But they take it to this place where it's like, actually, humanity is God. And like, but also not in any way that means anything for anyone. Like, they're literally just saying like, hey, what you're doing right now that's divine. And it's like, okay, but again, how do we, like, he, you know, when he's talking about co- completely collapsing the distinction between God and creation, because if God is ultimately other, then God is a monster, because look at the world. What I assume he's saying there is like, God won't stop all the bad shit that happens. And so if God is outside looking at this and not doing anything about it, then God is a monster. So, and then he says, but if God is us, is this, well, then we, God, are playing quite the kinky little game. So when God is watching atrocities happen, it's a monstrous act of like 
divine uh, non-intervention. But when it's us who are God committing atrocities, it's a kinky game about overcoming the ego and being you you know being completed in someone else. Can we just think about the material politics there? He's basically saying like, "Hey, man, if it's you know if it's just down to us, like." Just do whatever makes you feel good. And like, doesn't matter what somebody else is doing if it's not hurting you. I mean, it's the ultimate washing your hands, like white privilege politics, but it's dressed up in all this language of sort of like wokeness and deconstruction to help you think that you're getting to somewhere healthy when really what you're getting to is this like total self self absorption where you're the only thing you have to, to worry about and like nothing you do has any impact on anybody else. Yeah, it's very, I think you're right. Like it's it's also very white, right? Or very like middle, upper middle class white of uh, the idea that just like, it, I, I think, and tell me if I'm reading this wrong, but it does sound like there's an assumption of an even playing field, right? Like that if we mm-hmm. just kind of, if we just kind of all acknowledge this, that, that the playing field is is even. And I don't know that if they would articulate it in that way, but that's, I think what I've been trying to think of if we're not dunking anymore. Uh, I've been, <laughs> I've been thinking about how, you know, it's just like the power of something like liberation theology, right? Like when, when that like, of like kind of returning like theology to a place that has a material and a historical concern is super important. And, and to me, this, this seems to erase some of that. Like I said, where it just says, no, the world is kind of set. There's almost like a weird kind of like, uh, there's an order to the world and we just have to kind of vibe with it a little bit more than we are now. Um, that, that just, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I, I think you've convinced me that I have to listen to this podcast now, which I kind of hate you for. Um, but, but I, I don't know that. Yeah. I, CJ, I think you're, I, I I'm, think I'm right where you are. It's just like trying to listen to it graciously is, is, is difficult for me because I just fundamentally disagree with it because I think it robs Christianity of everything. Like, the reason I want to be a part of it is is all the stuff that they're trying to get rid of. Like without that stuff, it's just like I'll, I'll sleep in on Sundays. I won't. I won't. I wouldn't have gone into debt for all this crap. Um, so I don't know. I, I guess I'm, that my my moral is that I'm going to have to listen to this podcast and and see. Uh, we can we can check in next week. But <laughs> well, well and I also just sorry. No I, go. I just also don't think that it's necessarily asking a super interesting yeah question. I mean, like at the end of the little monologue you read. Um, I don't know who was speaking, if it was Gunker or or Richard Rohr, whoever, but um, they were saying like that if you have, like if you're, like if racism and homophobia and all of these horrible things in the world exist, then we haven't met the Christ. And I mean, all those things exist. And I, I just, I think it's a more interesting question to say, well, what if someone does believe, like it's an, it's a no, it's a no true Scotsman fallacy. Like, Mm. And it's a more interesting question to say, like, what if all these people who say they're Christians and truly believe that they have a personal relationship with Jesus and continue to do horrible things to their neighbor, like, what does that say about Christianity as it moves in the world? Um, and what does that say about, like, their personal relationship with Jesus? Was it say that we, have, we are called to be in some form of community with other people who call themselves Christians, even if they believe in a very different Jesus than we do. That's a more interesting question to me. And uh, like, I just, I find it like kind of a very, like a weirdly simple answer to be like, well, you haven't met the Christ if you're a homophobe or a racist. (laughs) Well, but I think that the other reality though is that this, you know, love of power or racism or homophobia, they're all personal problems in this theology. There is no notion of sort of like, 
actual power between and uh, inequality and material difference between like groups of people, as Brian said. Like, you're not like rich people aren't out here, you know, contributing more to climate change because they're like greedy people who are crushing the working class. They're doing it because they haven't overcome the ego. Mm-hmm. And it's like that. And, and this is, this gets Which me is to also like, like a really Freudian concept that isn't like necessarily a helpful one. But anyway, like, again, also another thing that a uh, hundred years ago was very in vogue to say that <laughs> now has been challenged in many, many different ways. Yeah. But you know, the bigger issue there though is that so basically what they're saying is that like, oh, the reason why people do shitty things are they have the wrong ideas. And, you know, or they have the wrong experience or or knowledge of themselves, which I guess is, you know, if they'd only figure out that they're God, then it wouldn't make their ego get even bigger. Uh it would just make them be humble and like love their neighbor. Um so <laughs> so I think part of the problem here though, and and we need to, it's something that we've been talking about in previous podcasts. And I know we have some guests coming up like uh, Melissa for, for Bixler and, and um, some others that are going to help us flesh this out. But when we see political issues, like as the, the reason for their existence as sort of ideological in its, in their roots, like when Nancy Pelosi tweeted that George Floyd was a sacrifice for the sake of this nation and someone saying, well, see, here's the problem with atonement theology Mm. is that Nancy Pelosi can tweet this as if in the back of her mind, she's thinking George Floyd is the archetype of the Christ and his overcoming is like, whatever is going to lead us to pass the George Floyd justice and policing act. Like, no, what's happening there is that she's, being a piece of shit trying to serve her own political agenda. But again, it does the exact same thing that Hamilton does. It completely erases the reality of who wrote these texts, which, you know, even if the church, even if you agree with what we started with, their statement that the church is only about power and every decision about scripture has always been about power. Well, except the decision to write the fucking thing, which is not about power. It's the testimony of an oppressed people resisting colonialism and seeing Jesus's story as relevant to that resistance. So I, I just think we get back to this notion that like, oh, the ideas are at the, are the, or the ideology or the theology is the root of our political problems. No, it's material conditions on the actual ground. And when we make it ideology, or theology or philosophy or whatever, we're basically saying, okay, the Western Academy is going to be the place where all this shit is solved and not the streets or not, you know, <laughs> not like tearing down Wall Street or like redistributing wealth or smashing borders. It's just once we think the right things, we'll be good people. And I think, if anything, the history of Christianity shows us that that's just not the case. It's not about like having the right args, it's about material conditions between groups of people and having a power analysis that gives actual reason for why things like atrocities happen and not just some like bullshit about the ego and the self. There, I'm done. (laughs) No, I mean, I think you make a good point. And I think that, uh, I mean, I think it's going to intersect with um, Emily Joy Allison, who hopefully we're having on the pod soon. I mean, all of her work is in purity culture which is also extremely rooted in theology that like in evangelical theology that divorces any sense of like any sense of the body from the spirit. And like, there's, 
there's like that that serves the people in power. Like if you're not if you're not in touch with like your body and you're not in touch with your material conditions, that's like uh, that only serves people who want to take advantage of of your body and have control over it. Anyway, I'm sorry that I, that came up for me as you were talking because I think it like like the the spirituality of all of this conversation, like the really heady conversation is all well and good, but it, sometimes, sometimes it, like on the progressive side, as well as the evangelical side, it's like, let's, let's talk about uh, what's actually happening here. Right. Well, you know, it's like, okay, well, if we can just put a different spin on these ideas, then we'll work our way out of racism and homophobia. Or if we can just put like a different skin color on the founding fathers, then America will be good. Like our history will no longer be the shit that it is. But as long as we can, you know, put a veneer over the actual material history. So yeah, I just think that people need to deconstruct theology. They need to work through religious trauma, but they need to attend to it by attending to the actual harm that has been done in communities. And, um, you know... Sometimes it's more than just like, oh, I had to sing this like shitty CCM song and it gave me like this notion of shame. No, it's actually how those the people in the room around you singing taught you to think about shame. And like, you know, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean like, I, we're coming up at the end, but I think like we dunk a lot about uh, CCM <laughs> and like different aspects of evangelical culture. But uh, that's like, I think... Uh, I just feel like we've come in hot, but the liturgists have have done important work like for in the past for, I mean, for me personally, and I know for a lot of other people, but it's like these discussions are so difficult to have. And I think it's like, it can be really hard to be working with like an entirely new set of vocabulary um, in the kind of progressive Christian or post-Christian spaces when you but still trying to unpack the mindsets and like frameworks that had an that, that you carried with you from childhood. Anyway, so I'm I hope that we didn't come off as as as, as too angry. Well, I'm angry because it's not <laughs> leading people out of the problems. Like the same concepts that they were taught in evangelical theology are all present in this bullshit. Like shame still has a place, you know. Um, all these other notions, like problematic ideas, they're still operating in what Michael Gunger is talking about it and talking about. He cannot get himself out of it because ultimately, like I said, it's just another way to talk about how to be white, like how to be a white supremacist, how to stay comfortable in empire, how to not have to give a shit when people around you are being killed, you know? And it's just, it's not going to get people to where they're actually trying to go. And so like, I can't be charitable about it because bad theology kills. And this is bad theology. It's 100% bad theology. Liturgists, you're canceled. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I guess also I should say that I wasn't trying to be charitable perhaps towards Gunger who has proven himself to not be very very charitable to other people, but just to people who maybe have like found those discussions helpful. Hopefully this conversation was also helpful. Do we have time for a fight corner or do we want to, we want to cap it? I mean, I said, why not? 
This whole episode has been a fight corner. It's, it feels like so. Let's, let's just. It's uh, been one long extended Isaac fight corner. <laughs> this whole episode was Isaac's like, I got a beef. Let's record. <laughs> yeah, my whole episode like, hey, white libs. Here's all the shit that you like. I hate it. And here's another take on NPR too. <laughs> oh yeah, stop standing, standing Israel NPR. Fuck oh off. God, yeah. Yikes. Palestine will be free. <laughs> Maybe we'll skip the fight corner then. <laughs> I, I was gonna say, CJ, we we we've, we've. I think what's happened is we've entered into the the post recording, uh, like oh shit moment. That uh, maybe that that now we're just we're, we're like live tweeting it basically. Like after I get done with some of the episodes, I'm like, oh great, this is it. I am gonna get canceled, and we're just still on air. So I think that's. Oh, you, you, I mean, I'm not worried about getting canceled. <laughs> I don't. I really don't. They've care already either. tried. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, every I let. In their next episode on death and resurrection, I learned that every breath you take and every moment is a self-cancellation and a resurrection. What? No. You die and are reborn every time, every second. <laughs> That's the show, everybody. <laughs> All right. Bye, guys. <laughs>